Game two, I played as well as I could play. Barkley from the outside. Barkley. 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 Not to brag on myself, I was not going to let us lose. Take that shit off the windows. <laughs> you don't need it tonight. Losing to Michael, there's no shame in that. Sports are like a gunfight. And we lost to the fastest gun. D and Davis show continuing profiling the last dance, a story about the last season of the Chicago Bulls or the story of Michael Jordan and the people around him. Uh, and also diving into the seasons prior to that to help us because we kind of want to break down parts that haven't really kind of been sussed out to a certain degree. And that's one, the 92-93 finals against the Phoenix Suns and the Chicago Bulls. And to help us do that, we have Bob Young, a contributing writer from the shot, I mean, the athletic uh, Arizona joining us right now. How are you doing, Bob? Doing great. Thank you. So listen. My first question for you, um, coming from the other side, because I think one thing that we really want to do is kind of get the narrative from the other side of the people that were playing the Bulls, because the internet wasn't around back then, so you really didn't know what was going on. And coming into that season, you had the Dream Team, and to me, and I'm a Chicago fan, but the star of the Dream Team, as far as who really balled out, was Charles Barkley. And for the most part, we're East Coast basketball fans, so we loved him on the 76ers, but the 76ers weren't that good of a team. They didn't build a roster around him. There was so much just fame and, and, and attention uh, put on him going to the Phoenix Suns. How was that transition from Charles Barkley joining the Phoenix Suns? And at that point with what they already had on that roster, that they envisioned that they were going to make it to the, to, to the West Coast, I mean, to the, to the finals rather in the first season with him joining the team. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they envisioned it happening that quickly, but that was definitely the, the uh, aim. In fact, uh, Cotton Fitzsimmons, who was kind of the player personnel guy at the time, kind of rather famously told Charles when, when they first brought him in, he took him into the arena and he said, all of these seats are already full. They've already been sold. That was the, that, the arena was opening that year. Yeah. And, uh, and told he said, get a yeah, banner. He said your, exactly. Your job yeah. is to put a banner yeah. up there. And if, yeah. and if you don't, then this was a bad deal. This failed. Mm. So, they never did that, but they did, they did make a run to the finals. So that was the idea all along, yeah. Now, look, this is the second year for the Bulls making the finals. So this isn't a dynasty just yet. Even though for a lot of people, Michael Jordan may have been the greatest player either of that era or alive, you can't just say it was a lock they were going to be Phoenix. What was the mentality of the Phoenix area in that team? Did they think, you know what, that the Bulls may have won one title, it's our chance, or did they look at the Bulls as being an insurmountable mountain that they couldn't uh, get over? Uh, they, they had the best record in the league that year. Uh, they had, they had uh, played well against New York, which was kind of the other team on the rise at that time in the East. Uh, they had played well against the Bulls. So, um, you know, they, I think that they fully expected – and, you know, they had Charles, the MVP of the league. So they, they definitely – they had home court. Uh, uh, and the other thing that was – you know, you may recall that first round – escape they made against the Lakers mm-hmm. went, went to five games and they, they, you know, they were down 0-2 at home. Uh, 
And so they, that, that's when they kind of had that, uh, well, we're a team of destiny. You know, that, that was kind of Charles, uh, his mantra, you know, that, that we're, we're destined to win this. Uh, and so, you know, that thing, that comeback against the Lakers really kind of ignited the whole town and, and I think gave that team and, and the city the belief that, that it was actually going to happen. Uh, you know, as it turned out, Michael Jordan had something to say about that. <laughs> D.N. Davis Show, Demos Pro, Kenneth Davis. Joining us right now, Bob Young of The Athletic AZ. Follow Bob on Twitter at BobYoungTHI. Uh, Bob, one thing that's really jumping out at me is uh, Charles Barkley's made his rounds around uh, the TV shows, the sports shows. And one thing he's saying that uh, that's, I would definitely say good on his part is that he's taking full responsibility of the Suns not winning that first game, that game one against the Bulls. But can it give us an inside look at his leadership on that team and also the leadership during the finals? Well, there was, you know, there was never any doubt from the day he arrived that he was the leader of the team, even though it was a really good team before that with all-stars like Kevin Johnson and Dan Marley and Tom Chambers. It was a really solid team. But, you know, one of the first things he did at training camp, the very first night of training camp that season, uh, he took out Cedric Sabalos in a scrimmage. I mean, he, he, he buried him mm. and, and really kind of pissed off all of his teammates, uh, new teammates. And, and he essentially wanted to deliver a message to them that, you know, I'm going to, we're going to be a tougher team and we're going to, you know, and I want to see who's with me and who's willing to fight me, who's willing to fight with me. So that was kind of his message that, you know, we're going to change things here because they had a reputation of being a soft team, mm. you know, pretty team, they're pretty basketball, you know, but not, not tough enough. And so that was his, and, and, you know, he and Cedric became really close friends. They were, you know, that was one of his, his favorite teammates, but that first night, man, he hammered him and, uh, and took him out and really kind of tested him. So, yeah, he, he, he set the tone for that team from the very first day of training camp and certainly in the finals. But I think, you know, he's taken that, he's taken that heat. But I think if you look back at that series, the guy that really played poorly in the first two games was Kevin Johnson. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Kevin would probably tell you that. And there was a feeling that there was a certain amount of maybe stage fright. You know, they didn't have that that finals pedigree like the Bulls. The Bulls had, you know, coming off of two championships looking for a third. Uh, and the Suns, you know, were not really ready for those first couple of games at home. And uh, and then, of course, they, they kind of turned the series around in game three, and Kevin Johnson was the guy that guarded Jordan in that game uh, to some effect. <laughs> I think he had 44 or something like that. But, uh, you know, but that kind of got him engaged in the series, and it was much better after that. Now, we all know Michael Jordan as being the ultimate competitor, and also he likes to make up these rivalries in his head. So what did yeah. you think about the rivalry that he made in his head about uh, with Dan Marley just because Jerry Krause liked him? And also, too, did that come out, like, during the finals or maybe a little bit afterwards, or is this the first time you're hearing of it? No, that was, that was actually news to me. I, I was not aware that he had kind of a, a little grudge there with Marley. I'm sure Marley probably knew it, but uh, – or or sensed it, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, uh, no, that was, yeah, that there, there have been some enlightening things in this and that was one of them. I, I didn't realize that he took it so personally. I mean, I knew that he, first of all, didn't like Krauss. Obviously I think that's well known. Uh, and I knew that, uh, 
that he has, you know, a way of creating rivalries when rivalries don't exist. Uh, so it didn't surprise me that that happened with somebody, but I wasn't aware that Krause had a love affair with Marley. Dear Davis, right now we have Bob Young, contributing writer for the Athletic Arizona, joining us. He was, he's was he been covering sports in Arizona for a very long time, so we needed him to join us to talk about the Phoenix Sun side of the 92-93 finals. Listen, that's funny because one of the questions I had, I actually felt like watching that final back as a youngster that Kevin Johnson actually deed up Mike fairly well. Like, because, again, being like you said, it was a pretty team, and in a certain way, yeah, Dan Marley, that falls upon and Tom Chambers, but – KJ was the star of that team. So a lot of that kind of, I would say, sticks to him. But I remember when he switched off on Mike thinking like, little KJ is really getting down. And at least to my question, Bob, how was the relationship between KG and Charles Barkley being that it was KJ's team and Barkley came in to be the alpha and it didn't seem like that there was going to be any negotiation over that fact. And I always think about a player of Phoenix Sun that I loved that didn't like prosper when he left the team what Charles Barkley said about Elliot Perry running the point guard as far as like, you know, and he said it jokingly, quote unquote, but the team ran better when Elliot Perry was a point guard, a, a kind of a jab at KJ when KJ was hurt. How was the relationship and how did Charles Barkley succeed the power from KJ and how did KJ react to losing the powers being the alpha on that team? You know, uh, I think that uh, people that were around at that time will tell you that nobody sacrificed more. Maybe, uh, with that team than Kevin. The only, the only other one might've been Tom Chambers since he was a kind of a, a star and went to the bench and went to a six man role on that team. But Kevin Johnson accepted the fact that, you know, the team was going to be Charles Barkley's team and he wanted to win a championship. And he thought that, you know, he realized that his, he was going to have to sacrifice some of his game uh, to do that. Um, I, you know, I, I never, I, you know, Charles will tell you that they were, there was never any problem there. And I don't think that there was, but they weren't, they weren't like guys that they, they weren't buddies, you know, on the road or anything like that. Charles had his guys on the team that, but you know, one of his, one of his favorite teammates again was Mark West. And the guy that was closer to Kevin Johnson than anybody on that team was Mark West. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, and Cedric was another guy that was close to KJ. So there, there was a bridge there, if you will. And uh, so, you know, they made it work. I, I don't, again, I, their, their personalities were so different and their, their value system kind of was different, you know, and, uh, you know, and Kevin was one of those guys that very thoughtful about everything he says, kind of picks and chooses his words very carefully. Charles, as you know, just lets it hang out, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever's on his mind, you're going to get it, you know, uh, and it may be completely different tomorrow, but that's okay. That was Charles. So yeah, but they, they, uh, they made it work. And, and uh, I think Kevin really sacrificed and recognized that he had to, and that was, that's the way it was going to be with Charles. I, I think everybody knew that. What's the relationship? I, I didn't think about this prior to this, but what's the relationship between the Phoenix community and Kevin Johnson with some of the things that have come out over the last decade about him uh, as far as, you know, just some, some disturbing things that do they believe is factual? How, how's the relationship with KJ being that he was such a prominent star in that region? Yeah, you know, that stuff surfaced while Kevin was still in Phoenix when he was still playing with his sons. I mean, that, that, was, that stuff was known. It was reported. Uh, you know, it was not pursued by the police or authorities and that sort of thing. Uh, I think he's still held in very high regard here, at least by basketball fans. I'm sure that 
people that are outside of, you know, that, that kind of bubble of sports that we we live in, they might have different opinions of him, but, you know, he was a guy that was very active in the community and tried to help a lot of people. And, uh, and at the time acknowledged that his, his judgment was bad in that situation. Um, so yeah, he, 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 you know, he apologized for it and all that at the time. Like I said, there was no, he was not, he was not charged with anything or, you know, no charges were filed or pursued, but, uh, yeah, it was definitely bad judgment on his part. And he acknowledged that. And look, one thing. So a guy that I used to love, I loved him as a son. I loved him as a Laker between before Shaq and Kobe got there. Uh, if Cedric Chabalas was healthy in the 93 finals, do you think the Phoenix would have won since he went down with the injury against the Supersonics in uh, the, the, the Western Conference Finals? Questions, you know, we'll never know the answer. Um, yeah. Richard Dumas, Richard Dumas was really good in those finals. He played extremely well. Uh, he had a couple of games. I had one game where I think it was game, might have been game five, when he was like 12 or 14 from the floor or something like that. Uh, but Cedric, Cedric definitely would have contributed and would have been another guy, you know, he would have been the starter and Dumas would have been coming off the bench. And Cedric was just one of those guys that manufactured points and he was great. He was a great rebounder. Uh, so, you know, we'll never know, but he definitely would have, he would have had something to say about it. And he was definitely one of their, their top five, six players. Dean Davis show, Bob Young joins us of the athletic AZ. Uh, Bob, one thing that also was uh, very apparent uh, in this last couple of episodes was the fact that Michael Jordan would seem to be kind of like mentally burning out at that particular time. Now you was covering the team, obviously uh, during the finals, but did anyone, but did, as far as the reporters, did you all get a sense of, of him burning out or it was also, uh, I believe it's the time around where he wasn't talking to the media for a little bit. Uh, but did you all get like kind of a sense like, man, you know, saying this is not the Michael Jordan that we probably covered years ago, early in the nineties, or a kind of burning out sensation. Yeah, I think, I think there was a feeling throughout that season that there was a lot of drama there and that there was you know a lot of distraction with the bulls and uh, you know, they, they, you know, they weren't quite as overwhelming as they had been the previous season. Uh, and so, and then, it, and meanwhile, with the Suns, you know, they were, they had the best record in the league and, uh, you know, they were kind of on a mission and Charles, the MVP and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think that's why a lot of people thought that that, that was definitely a series the Suns had a chance to win because you could tell that there was, you know, that there was a little bit of, uh, drama going on with the Bulls at that time. And as far as him being burned out, uh, I never sensed that. He sure didn't play like he was burned out in the finals. But, you know, that, the guy did expend a lot of energy, you know, to carry that team that season. So I can understand why he would be. Yeah. Is there any angle um, that you would like to have been you know, kind of like uh, pushed a little more or portrayed more in these, um, in these past couple of episodes with the, with the finals between the Suns and the Bulls? Yeah, you know, I was, I was trying to uh, – I'd have to think about that. I, You know, I like I said, there were a few things there that I wasn't – you know, that I had not heard, uh, you know, one of them being the fact that Jordan was supposedly burned out. Uh, I, I never – I don't recall at least hearing that aspect of it. Um, now, you know, I thought – I thought, uh, you know, the, the Suns were a part of the – you know, when you're looking at the whole – you know, the last dance with the six championships and the final ride and all that stuff that they, they were, you know, they were a smaller piece of that, 
bigger picture. Uh, and I thought it was fairly well covered. I, I do, th I will say this, you know, uh, uh, and they spent a lot of time on that last, that last shot of Paxson's and at play. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought, you know, as much as I love Charles, uh, he screwed up on that play. You know, Ainge has always gotten the blame for leaving Paxson and he did. And, and as a matter of fact, the last thing that they did when they broke the huddle, uh, Ainge yelled at everybody, no threes. <laughs> and Ainge was the one that left Paxson for the three. But if you look at that play, it breaks down at the very start because Charles jumped a pass from Jordan to Pippen trying to make the steal mm -hmm. above the top of the key. And that left him free, gave him room to break down the defense. And Ainge left Paxson to foul Horace Grant. And I don't think he ever thought in a million years that Horace Grant right under the basket was going to throw the ball back out to Paxson, although they did that in the series. It wasn't like the first time it had happened in the series where, you know, they broke the defense down and then kicked it out. Um, but you can see that he, he actually does grab him or push him right, right as Horace is passing the ball back out. Uh, he, ne he never should have left him regardless, you know, but that all broke down when Charles tried to make that steal and he gambled and lost that time. Bob, real quick. One thing, one, one thing that I do remember about that finals and in particular that play, because Charles Barkley, I saw him recently talk about how he felt the first final, the first three P team was better than the second, which he's probably right, especially when it comes to pressing defense. But, and he said that Horace was a better all around player than Dennis, but he wasn't a greater player because Charles Barkley took Horace Grant's shake in that finals. Like, mm -hmm. as a kid, part of the reason that I always felt Horace threw that ball out, he didn't want to shoot anything. He didn't want to go – like, Charles Barkley just he, – he, he, he did everything. So, Horace Grant had a terrible final. I think he had made one field goal in that game, yeah. Uh, yeah. possibly. It was like – when I saw it, it was like, no, not Horace. And when Horace got out, I was like, you knew you shouldn't have taken that shot. So, it was it's, even with that, it was always – I always think about that final when it comes to Horace. But, look – you mentioned a player, and I definitely knew when we was going to have you on that I, I wanted to ask you about because it's a forgotten player. He may not have been a great player in the long run, but he would have had a, a really decent career, if not a good career, and that was Richard Dumas. For, for people that never saw Richard Dumas play, tell them about Richard Dumas and also how early on, I mean, of course the next season he was suspended because of his drug problem, but how early on did it start to seem like he had issues that were going to possibly take him off the court? Well, when they when – they uh, drafted him, they knew that he had issues. He had okay. had issues uh, prior to that. And it was one of those deals where, you know, they, they decided that he was talented enough to, to take a chance and give him, a, give him an opportunity and hope that he made the best of it. And, uh, you know, there, was, there were people in, in that organization at the time uh, Paul Westfall being one of them. Uh, there was an assistant coach named Scotty Robertson, who was another that they thought that other than maybe two or three players in the league, he, he had the potential to be better than anybody else in the league, other than the Jordans, you know, of the world and the Barclays there, there, he was, he was a fabulously talented player. And, you know, he was a rookie. You know, that, in the finals in that you know in that stage um so you know I, I still remember uh the next year when he was when he was out and suspended uh 
out of the blue, I, I got a, uh, I got a little tip that he might be coming back. Cause he was, you know, he was suspended indefinitely and, you know, in treatment and all that stuff. And so I asked Paul Westfall about it and it was just me and Paul in his office. And, and, uh, you know, I said, I said, you got, you guys planning to add anybody to the roster anytime soon. And he had this little look on his face and he goes, he said, uh, what if I told you that uh, we're going to have the best player that's not playing basketball right now? And then he looked at me and said, and I don't mean Michael Jordan, because that was when Jordan was playing baseball, of course, next year. <laughs> and I said, is Richard, I said, I heard Richard might come back. And he said, yeah, he's gonna, he'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> so mm. I was like, oh, well, that's a good story for me. Thank you. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so Richard was, he was, you know, man, it's just, uh, he's one of those guys that you wished he'd, he'd have been able to. You know, Roy Tarpolis. Yeah. Yeah. He just was so talented and, and, uh, you know, and, it, and it, a, a nice guy, you know, I mean, just dealing with him and stuff, you know, you, you, you know, he had his demons, you know, mm-hmm. but he was not a, wasn't an unple- unpleasant dude by any means, you know, it just, he just had a hard time with it. I remember, uh, that, I think it was that summer, Oliver Miller and Richard Dumas were uh, roommates on a cruise. They had like a, a son's cruise, you know, where they, they, the players go on a cruise with some fans or sponsors or whatever. And, and Oliver uh, said that, you know, Richard would wake up in the morning and pour a shot and light a cigarette. That's how he got out, how he got out of bed in the morning. Like, okay. Whereas that was, you know, this was a different era, but yeah. So, you know, even Oliver, you know, was like, wow. And that's Oliver Miller. Yeah. yeah right. Who necessarily wasn't one to take care of himself, everybody. He was a large male for an undersized center yeah. for people that don't know Oliver Miller. Talented, though. Uh, Dean Davis here with Bob Young after the Athletic Arizona. Follow him at Bob Young, THI Bob. Let me ask you about the end. So after the finals, did it seem like that was the best chance or did there seem like there was still a run? Was it after John Stockton hit that, that, that shot in the playoffs to knock Phoenix out? Like how was Barkley's exit? Were the fans ready to move on or did they think they should just let this Peter out and enjoy what they were at right there? Well, uh, by the time that it was actually over. Uh, yeah. They, they, I think, I think everybody knew that. I mean, Charles was basically forcing his way out at that point, but you know, they had, they, they had two golden opportunities. You know, they were, they were really good and Jordan was no longer there, you know, uh, and they ran into the Rockets in, you know, two years in a row and had them down three to one, two years in a row and couldn't, couldn't close the deal. And, uh, you know, that was, that was their really, you know, the 90, everybody looks at that 93 finals as their big opportunity, but they're, they were really, you know, in position. In fact, I'm trying to remember which season, well, I guess it was the, it was the, uh, the second year after that finals when Danny Manning came and they had far and away the best record in the league, or at least in the West, they had the best record in the league, but far and away in the West. And then Manning blew out his knee. You may remember, I think they were 36 and 10 or something like that at the time. They were, they were really good. And, uh, and they still, you know, were probably, you know, a good enough team to win and win a championship that year, even with, even after that injury. So, they had a three-year run there where they definitely should have should have won a championship, and they just didn't. Uh, they just didn't get it done. All right, Bob. Uh, last one for me. 
uh, sure. the, the current state of the Suns. Uh, right Oof. now, they're they're trying. Yeah, <laughs> they're trying to rebuild. They're trying to get back up to the way once good promise. Some but, talent, uh, though. Some talent. Yeah, it's some young talent on there. So, but, but what do you think about the current state of the Suns and potentially how they're going to? Or, or hey, maybe you could drop a school for us right now. How do you envision or how you have you heard anything about how the NBA might possibly open back up? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do or what their plan is in that regard. I haven't, I haven't heard anything more than you guys probably have. But, uh, you know, that I, I think that uh, two things have happened in the last couple of years that I think have really helped. And um, one is the, – the biggest one is that they hired Monty Williams. And I think he's and – and, and he, wouldn't, he wasn't coming without, you know, some security. So he got a five-year deal – which they have not given a coach in a long time. So he got a five-year contract. He's, he's, you know, he's got a hammer, and they needed somebody to, to be in that position. Uh, and I think James Jones is, is going to prove to be a pretty good GM over time. He's, he's kind of learning on the job a little bit, but, mm-hmm. but hiring Monty was a pretty good, pretty good hire. You know? And they do, have, they do have a good core of young players. Uh, you know, they have some weaknesses and, you know, the, the biggest issue with this team over the last 10 years has been, you know, quite honestly, keeping the owner out of the way, you yeah. know, when he, and, you know, I don't know if he, if he thinks he knows more basketball than he knows, or maybe he knows basketball and, you know, he's, but he has made it difficult for the people that work for him over the last 10 years. And, they just had so much change and so much upheaval uh, that it's difficult to ever, you know, break through. And I think the fact that they finally have some stability in the front office and that Robert uh, Sarver has kind of moved aside and let them do their thing, uh, at least to this point, I think that's a very good sign for the, for the franchise. Bob, my last one. Uh, one of the characters from that team – that kind of has disappeared. And at that time, if you told me they were going to disappear, I wouldn't believe it was the head coach. And I know Paul Westfall has stops with the supersonics and the Kings, but he was like a TV coach, you know, like you, I would think that he would one be, he would one be on television, but at least have been coaching for at least 15 more years because he was just charismatic. And you thought he was going to be one of those breakthrough coaches that stayed around in the NBA for so long. What happened to Paul Westfall? Why didn't his coaching career, definitely a decent player, but why didn't his coaching career find more success after leaving the Phoenix Suns? You know, that's a, that's a good question. And I, I don't, uh, I guess I don't know. I mean, he's, he just never had another opportunity with a team that good. That's for sure. Uh, you know, he had, and he coached briefly in college. He was at Pepperdine for a while and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's, he, he had his, his, you know, his opportunities, that's for sure. But he never had another team like he had there. I thought, you know, one of the, the, the things I loved about Westfall is, you know, he wasn't a big ego guy. Uh, you know, those guys, they all have a certain amount of ego or they wouldn't be where they are, but he, you know, he was, he was a pretty, uh, you know, grounded guy. And one of the things that most impressed me after, all those, you know, all of his attempts at, and his opportunities as a head coach, Lionel Hollins, who had been, Lionel asked him to be an assistant for him. And, you know, he, here's a guy that, you know, Lionel used to work for him 
And he was, he was able to go work for the guy that he gave, you know, that had worked for him. You know what I mean? He was able to put his ego aside and say, absolutely. I'll do everything I can to help you. Like you did everything you could to help me, you know? So, uh, yeah, I have a lot of admiration for him and he was a, you know, I was glad to see him get into the hall of fame in this last class. Cause he, uh, he had, he was a fabulous player. I, I was actually, I'm old enough to have seen him play and, uh, he was really good. He was, he was, he was the most creative scorer I've ever seen, you know, for a guy, he had athleticism, don't get me wrong, but he was, he was just so creative about how he could, you know, uh, manufacture openings and shots and you have these little pirouette moves and stuff that were just you know youtube them <laughs> he's kind of he's got some great highlights <laughs> anyway yeah so i don't know i you know he was a smart guy you, you know you may remember in the 76 finals he was the one that suggested calling a timeout they didn't have and taking mm. a technical so they could move the ball ah. up to half court to inbound uh, in, in that triple overtime game, he was involved as a coach and a player in the only two NBA triple overtime games. Mm. And it was him that told the head coach, John McLeod at the time, let's use our timeout. They'll call a technical, but they'll only get one point and we get the ball at half court. We'll be able to get a shot. And then Gar Hurd hit the shot heard round the world as they call uh, it and, uh. and uh, sent it to another overtime. They ended up mm-hmm. losing the game, but mm-hmm. it was, you know, that was, that was the kind of chops he had. I'll give you another one. Uh, if you go back and if, while you're on YouTube, go back <laughs> and look at the last regular season game of that 93 team where they, they won in Portland and they ran a play that he drew up. They had like half a second on the clock and they're inbounding from half court. So it's one of those, you got to catch it, shoot it, or, mm-hmm. you know, immediate, right? So he draws up a play with Oliver Miller, the center, who is a great passer. He tells Oliver, throw it at the rim. and So it looks like we, we want to set it up like we're doing an alley-oop for Cedric. But I want you to throw it high off the board. And Charles, you come in behind and catch it, and you got to shoot it instantly. And they ran that play, and Charles made that shot, and they won that game. And it was unbelievable that he would come up with that, <laughs> you know, this, like, schoolyard play. It was unbelievable, you know. It's like the kind of thing you draw up when you're playing backyard football or something. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I mean, you run over there. You, you trail here. You know, you, you roll the basket like we're going to alley-oop it, but bounce it up higher so that it goes to Charles. And they did that. And Oliver hit, you know, he made that pass. It was unbelievable. Uh, the downside was in the celebration, Kevin Johnson hyperflexed his knee oh. and ended up maybe remember he missed part of that Lakers series in mm-hmm. the first round because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, Bob, we Paul, def- Paul was creative. That's for damn sure. Bob, we definitely appreciate it. Everybody follow yep. Bob at Bob Young THI. Uh, it's definitely been a lesson and we, we look forward to talking to you down the line. You stay safe during this shelter in place, uh, you and your family, and we appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. I will do that. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care.